You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The Olympic motto, Sidious, Altius, Fortius, Faster, Higher, Stronger, crystallizes the unending desire for excellence that motivates elite athletes to continually push the envelope of human performance. Although doping may be the first thing that comes to mind, in women's sports, two contentious issues, sex fraud and transsexualism, are on the Clinician's Roundtable today. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine. He was the Director of Pediatric Endocrinology from 1971 to 1985. Dr. Janelle received the 2004 Joseph W. St. Jem Leadership Award, one of the highest honors in academic pediatrics, and was the recipient of the Abraham Jacoby Memorial Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics. In June 2006, he was appointed to the Health and Human Services Secretary's Advisory Committee on Human Research Protections. Dr. Janelle was a member of the International Olympic Committee Commission's Working Group on Transsexual Athletes, which wrote the criteria permitting transsexual athletes to compete in international athletic competition. Today we are discussing gender identity in sports. Is the playing field level? Welcome, Dr. Janelle, and thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Got to ask you one question off the bat. You're a pediatric endocrinologist. How the heck did you get interested in transgender athletes and qualifying them for participation in competitive athletics? Well, it stems from the fact that as a pediatric endocrinologist over the years, I've had to deal medically with children who have been born with disorders of, of genital development, both uh, genetic, uh, if you will, XY males and uh, XX females, in which we had to assist the families in uh, some cases in making a determination of gender of rearing, in other cases of uh, even before doing that, sorting out what the underlying pathophysiology was that accounted for these variations. Uh, and, and then over the course of uh, a number of years of pediatric endocrinology practice, uh, encountering uh, individuals uh, who uh, uh, did have some disorders and observing the impact that uh, that this had. So that when some of the controversies came up over the verification of female athletes in athletic competition, it was something that naturally interested me. Uh, the anecdote to this is that this all started when I got caught in a traffic jam and I had an issue of JAMA next to me in the car, which I started perusing through and came upon what was what is really the classic article criticizing the uh, gender verification test by a Finnish geneticist, Albert de la Chapelle. This was, uh, this was in 1986 because he pointed out the inequities of the current uh, screening procedure, which was to use a buccal smear to uh, verify that athletes competing in women's uh, competition were women. Now, the buccal smear is one of the first genetic tests that was defined in the 70s, and it depended upon observation of the condensation of one of the two X chromosomes. Would that so, be the bar body? The bar body, yeah, exactly. Basically, uh, it was done by taking a scraping from the inside of the mouth and uh, smearing the uh, buccal, that's therefore buccal smear, smearing the buccal mucosa on a slide, uh, applying a specific stain, and then identifying the presence or absence of bar bodies. Now, even under the best circumstances, no more than about 25% of cells would be positive. So if an individual had a, had a bar body count that was 25% positive, you said, well, they were XX, ergo, they were, quote, female. 
if there were no barb bodies, well, then by definition, they only had one X chromosome. And for purposes of gender verification, one would say they're XY. Well, not quite. Because a girl with Turner syndrome who had one X chromosome would have no bar bodies. And a male who uh, had Kleinfelter syndrome would have two X chromosomes and would have a bar body. That's, that's among the number of, of obvious inequities that came up. But more importantly, technically, this was not the easiest procedure to do because it required some degree of technical sophistication. And certainly re- reproducibility was a very, very important uh, factor. And I imagine you could also influence the result by uh, discussion with the technician, if one wanted to. Well, in theory, I suppose. I don't think, I'm not aware of any instances of that. Now, this was all started because, particularly after the Second World War, during the heat of the Cold War competition, the Cold War competition moved over into the athletic sphere, and some of the Eastern European women athletes, uh, particularly for the Soviet Union, were particularly successful. And uh, uh, there were some notorious cases, particularly the, uh, the the press sisters, where they were thought to be a suspect for being male masqueraders because uh, Tamara in particular, I think, who was the shot putter, uh, was uh, particularly, uh, the, the term is zoftic, <laughs> uh, no, that one means uh, particularly, uh, and, and and so there was a great deal of suspicion. Now between them, the press sisters had a whole string of uh, of medals. I think they I think they between them had something like twenty some medals over a period of uh, Olympic medals and world records over a period of uh, several years. Uh, as this became more and more heated, the uh, international sanctioning authorities decided that they would need to evaluate them more carefully. And initially, they had uh, the women parade nude in front of a panel of judges, uh, female judges, but nonetheless, you know, parade you know, just to verify that they were female. And uh, this was tried, I think, once in Budapest, and it was uh, not entirely successful. The sec- a second time, it was done by having their genitalia evaluated by a female gynecologist. Now, you know, this you can imagine as part of an athletic competition, this was somewhat uh, uh, degrading. To say the least. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you to pause for a moment and welcome those who may have just joined us and let them know they're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine, He was Director of Pediatric Endocrinology from 1971 to 1985, and we are discussing gender identity and sport is the playing field level. With all these problems, the IOC took a somewhat, I guess, progressive approach. By using the buckle smear, yeah. We're not going to have women parade nude in front of judges to determine whether they're women. We will use a but we'll be very sophisticated. We'll use the buckle smear. And now we have PCR. Does that help? Well, the PCR is at least somewhat better, but the, the problem was, as I said, is that the, the buckle smear really did not really truly differentiate that. The vast majority of, uh, of athletes who are uh, buckle smear negative and yet who compete successfully as women are individuals who have androgen insensitivity. Uh, these are XY males. Uh, who uh, are resistant to testosterone. So they have androgen insensitivity. Uh, they feminize. I mean, they, 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 typically these are women who are clearly feminine, but who do not have sexual hair because they do not respond to androgens. 
the majority of the athletes who have been screened out by uh, these detection procedures using the buccal smear have been, in fact, uh, individuals who have uh, uh, various forms of androgen sensitivity. You were involved with the writing of the current policy used by the International Olympic Committee. Could you tell us how you came to these conclusions and recommendations and specifically what they are, what the status is now for participation? Well, the problem that we thought was that there was no good laboratory test that would allow one to really certify that a woman competing in an athletic event was, 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 was eligible. And so we recommended that it be abandoned entirely. Now, there are two reasons why we recommend it. First of all, we felt that the current athletic clothing that's used in competition is such that uh, it would be very, very difficult in most of the sports for a male to masquerade as a female. I mean, that's the ostensible purpose for doing this, to preclude males who are masquerading as females. The second was that the current of the procedures that were put in place for doping control required that uh, individuals be observed voiding the urine. It did not seem possible for us, if uh, the voiding was being observed, that an individual who was uh, certainly male would not be recognized under those circumstances. So we felt it was a totally unnecessary procedure. Now, the interesting thing is that I think doing a buccal smear test or even PCR-based genetic test was one thing to do when you had 500 women competing uh, in uh, in the Olympics. It's another thing when you get to the point of, say, the Athens Olympics, where almost half of the 9,000 athletes that competed were women. Then it becomes a very expensive procedure to do. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of cheeks to be scraped. Well, yes, I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for discontinuing it, but but the bottom line is I think eventually it became so so cumbersome and so expensive uh, that uh, it it had to be abandoned. What is a post-pubertal male have to do to qualify as a female athlete? Surgical or hormonal to qualify as a female athlete uh, that would be uh, that would be substantial. Uh, one would have to have one's testes removed, one's penis reduced. One would have to take uh, hormone therapy, estrogen therapy for some number of years, and uh, one would have to employ, I suppose, uh, either laser or some form of debilitary to remove uh, body hair. I say the one instance we know of a male athlete who competed as a woman was in 1936 when a German uh, hurdler named uh, Hermann Uratchen competed uh, in the 100-meter hurdles in the 1936 Olympics. He subsequently acknowledged that he did this after being, quote, persuaded by Nazi officials to pose as a female. He finished fourth. <laughs> Excuse me, it was a high jump. High jump, not it was a high jump. Uh, and he finished fourth. Now that's instructive in and of itself. And uh, if one looks closely at the record times for uh, women's events compared to male events, you you come up with some very, 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 very interesting observations. Uh, For example, the best, uh, the women's time in the marathon, which was first run in uh, 1984 by Joan Benoit, was better than all of the men winners prior to 1956 with the exception of uh, one, that's Emil Zotopek, the famous Czech uh, athlete. And that was only by one minute. That's just in the uh, in the 10,000 meter, the 10K, uh, the women's uh, world record of 29 minutes, 31 seconds, is better than all of the winners of the men's Olympics before 1932. More significantly, in cross-country skiing, as another sort of uh, long-distance uh, sport, the women's Olympic record in 1998 
was better than the men's time in 1998. Now, the conditions may very well have been different, but would have beaten all of the previous men's time in the 30-kilometer cross-country before 1994. Well, this has been a great historical perspective on transgender athletes and how they compete on a level playing field. I want to thank Dr. Janelle, who's been our guest. We have been discussing gender identity in sport. Is the playing field level? I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.